0: Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. The government has committed the UK to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Reaching this target will require simultaneous transformation of several vital interconnected infrastructure systems. This system's approach to achieving net zero is being investigated by a working group from the National Engineering Policy Centre, who've recently published their first of several reports. With me to discuss the work of the group and the wider issues is Professor Rebecca Lunn, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Strathclyde and a member of the Working Group. Professor Lunn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me, it's a pleasure.
0: So before looking at some of the things that are in the report it may be worth defining what we mean with phrases like systems approach and systems thinking because people will have slightly different understanding about it do we mean by a systems approach?
1: So a systems approach to engineering is thinking about how, what you, the decision you make around, let's say one particular technology in net zero or one particular meeting net zero in one sector, how that impacts on what you need from all of the other sectors. Um, and when I say sector, I don't just mean sectors in engineering, I mean also things like social a change that might be required or regulations that might be brought in, for example. So the best way I can think of to give you an example would be to look at what's happening with electric vehicles at the moment. So the government has brought in um, legislation that says by a particular date that we will be only selling electric vehicles in the UK. But in order for that to work as a policy, We need to have a network of charging points so that that doesn't have a detrimental impact on transport and the economy in the UK, for example. We also need new technologies for batteries to improve their lifespan. So we need a supply chain. And then we need to think about other parts of the system. So batteries, for example, have metals in them, lithium cobalt. Those require increased mining production that has environmental impacts of its own. So how do we mitigate against those? But it also has a need for a supply chain. So we will need to significantly increase the amount of global production of some metals, for example. So that's just an example of one chain of events that you think, well, we made one decision and Europe could do, the whole of Europe could do the same thing. But actually that has a whole set of knock-on consequences of a system around it that needs to happen to make it work. And what you're trying to avoid are any unforeseen consequences, really. So, for example, the issue around mining production, the World Bank estimates that to meet the for 2050 to meet our renewables um, increased targets for batteries and for things like um, electric vehicles, we'll need a thousand times higher production rates of metals from mining. That is a huge increase in mining production and it needs to be managed in a sustainable way
0: so one of the impressions i got from what you said is it's unbelievably complicated to do all of these things and to actually think about all of the different elements i mean when you're putting together a systems approach how can you be even slightly sure that you've thought about all the things that that you need to think about how do you gather the minds together to make sure that you've not missed something really important
1: so the purpose of the working group is to include a very wide wide range of experience and disciplines. And we have sort of socioeconomic factors and sort of expertise within that group, as well as the wider engineering expertise. And then as we look at individual topics like decarbonizing homes or construction or any of these things, we're also running workshops to consult as widely as possible. We then have software So there's engineering system software that allow you to build that kind of mind map of all the interconnections and what the implications of making one decision is on things like materials production, or do you need regulatory change or societal change? So there there are bits of software that can help you. They don't help you with the answers, but they help you by asking you the right questions that prompt your answers, I guess. So they help you think about the bigger picture and then try to network that together. But the main thing is to consult widely so that you get a very diverse input so that to ensure that you don't miss interconnections and don't inadvertently end up kind of backing yourself into a corner, having committed to something that turns out to be unsustainable, sustainable for other reasons, for example.
0: And the report that the Working Group put out recently talked about a number of things and and one of the things it talked about was some of both the opportunities and the challenges of decarbonisation across the UK and it'd be interesting just to tease out uh, uh, initially at least what some of those opportunities are so what what do you think as we move to a decarbonised society some of the opportunities are for the UK?
1: So I'm going to try slightly turn your question around and talk about the challenge first So I think the challenge is very significant and requires this kind of wholesale transformational change. It requires interconnectedness across industry, government, society, regulatory bodies in order to meet those challenges. And we will also require new technologies. On the other hand, if we are leading internationally on a policy perspective, and we have set ourselves as the UK, extremely challenging targets, when you compare it to the rest of the world, we're right up there with ambition. That gives us an opportunity. That gives us an opportunity to lead in what will be the future. So everybody has to move in this direction. If we can manage to set an economic and regulatory environment, that allows those and encourages those technologies to emerge and allows that kind of systems thinking to emerge as well and positively reinforces that, then we have something that's exportable to other countries is what I would say. So if we can create an environment that allows us to accelerate, we can stay at the top of this and this is what the future looks like. And that gives us the opportunity to export our ideas and our way of systems thinking and our way of sort of managing the process
0: and a lot of challenges to do that as you said so how do we create that environment what's needed who are the players involved in in making this happen
1: so i think that's an extremely difficult question but i do think that the i think the easiest way to think about it is to break it down and take some personally anyway and take some example areas, sectors right? So if we take the sector thinking about decarbonizing construction, for example, at the moment, that sector does not have incentives to decarbonize. So there's no incentives for R&D because at the moment we basically procure on a fixed model of, of, of low price. So we're, we're specifying the product we want and then we're asking people to cost it and procuring on that basis. So if we change that so that the incentives then drive a system where companies can benefit from thinking in an imaginative way, thinking in a challenge, thinking about developing new technologies, using different materials, many of which are already on the market actually, but there's no incentive to use them because they're either more expensive or more difficult to source in bulk. if we can change the system, then we can show how to do it in the sector. So what that requires is government and industry to work together to some degree to set up a framework and to think about the system and make sure they have all the kind of dominoes in place so that when they start at one end and say, right, by this date, you will, we will be procuring against the carbon target, for example. It is possible for industry to innovate to meet that, and all the the things that are required to make that work are in place. So for example, you will need to certify new materials for their embedded carbon. If people are going to develop low carbon materials, we need to have a way of certifying that they are genuine. If you mine with renewable machinery to cut your carbon in your mining operation, we need a way of demonstrating that that supply chain is credible, and that that's really what happens. So all of these things need to be put in place before we start, and they are a mixture of regulators, government, banks, to some degree, the insurance industry, because we will need to ensure new materials and new building methods, and that means some discussion about risk, With because we can't use, keep using the tried and tested methods, so some discussions with the insurance industry and the engineering companies. The one thing that I would say is we want to put a system in place that is outcome-based, so that we are procuring against an outcome of, say, a certain amount of embedded carbon by 2035 and then a more stringent level by 2040 and then net zero by 2050, for example, some kind of graded regulation. But we don't want to specify how companies do it because that will remove innovation from the engineering supply chain. And what we want to do is encourage R&D. So my feeling is the best way to tackle it is to do it by sector and to try and set a sector up so you incentivise the right behaviours and you have a way of certifying and regulating what is done as we move towards change. And I do think that the, the National Engineering Policy Centre can support how that is done and what, what the systems map might look like and help government think about all the things it needs to have in place before it launches something in a sector.
0: And presumably to achieve net zero eventually, you need to set a series of targets which are not so stringent that the sector collapses, but not so easy that the sector doesn't make changes. And that's quite an interesting balance to try and get right as you talk with and interact with a sector who may have a diversity of views, but some of those at least will be favouring the status quo, I guess. I
1: would entirely agree. I think you have to set a gradually more challenging set of targets. And I also think you need to set those with quite a wide view of what is possible and not just look at what is done in the UK. So, for example, in Denmark and in Holland, they are already procuring against carbon budgets. And it's the same players. We're talking global engineering construction companies here. So they can already do it in other markets and they can already construct using other methods, or they can use solar powered backup generators instead of diesel powered, you know, many things are possible, but in the UK there is currently no incentive to do them. So we need to look at what is possible and then design an element of challenge and not look at what we do now in designing elements of challenge, look across the world and see what is really possible and where best practice lies when we decide what challenge might look like.
0: I was going to ask you about international comparisons anyway. You mentioned a, a couple of countries. Are those countries ahead just because they've got some of their regulatory systems, or are there other things that we can learn from them in terms of, I don't know, technology or supply chains or company practice? Or what, what's giving them the edge at the moment?
1: I think what's giving them the edge at the moment is government will and regulatory frameworks and a social, it's really about a social license to operate. And in some countries, particularly Holland at the moment where they're seeing a lot of public challenge in the courts to to development projects, for example, they're losing the social license to operate. In the UK, I think that hasn't happened yet, but I think it's coming. Technologies are global largely now anyway what would help us in terms of making an opportunity of this challenge is being at the forefront so making sure that we have those targets in the uk and we have that pressure to meet the challenge rapidly and and fund innovation both through the private and the public sector and that won't happen without the targets there basically so we need that framework so that everybody is running in the same direction, so that we stay ahead of what happens internationally, because otherwise the pressure isn't there for the companies based in the UK to be at the forefront of that. We need to take the opportunity and set the challenge.
0: So what's the role of the university sector in all of this? We've talked about government, we've talked about industry, obviously come from a university yourself. Are we talking about large-scale development new technologies or, or are we mainly talking about embedding technologies that already exists? I mean is there a big role for academia in this?
1: I think we're talking about a mixture of the two. So there are some sectors that we already know that there are not a solution there is not a solution to and there are other sectors where there are clear solutions but there might be capacity issues. So, if I take an example that I think is with is within the Net Zero report, actually that that we published for the National Engineering Policy Centre, if you look at decarbonising buildings, you ca- we already know that you can heat a building through electrification, but that would place an enormous burden on our electricity requirements, an enormous burden because your heat is twice uses twice the amount of energy we use in in heating at the moment in the UK as we use in electricity. So at the moment, the way energy is divided, it's a quarter electricity, a quarter transport and half heat. roughly. So if you convert most of that heat requirement over to electrification, you have a huge amount more electricity to produce in the process of trying to take all of your gas-fired and coal-fired power stations offline So not only have you got to produce more electricity, but you've also got to replace all of your current electricity with renewables and potentially double or triple the total amount, which is a massive challenge and isn't going to work. So that by 2050 for me is not doable. So what we need to do is reduce demand. So we need to find smarter ways of reducing our electricity demand in everything that we do so that we can use that electricity in a smarter way. So partly that might be around storing it better and using it better. Partly that will be around technologies for retrofitting existing infrastructure. How can we reduce the energy requirements on old buildings? How can we bring in smarter techniques? Can we use things like ground source heating? So some of these are techniques that are well-developed that are difficult to implement either because they don't have an economic basis or a regulatory benefits basis for doing so. Some things though are still technological challenges. So for example, decarbonizing aviation, there isn't a non-carbon fuel on which you can currently fly a plane. So the challenge for, and batteries are very heavy, and the idea that you could log that into the sky um, would make flying deeply inefficient. So So there are some areas where we really desperately need new technologies. Um, Thinking again about how much heat we all like to live somewhere light, but we lose a lot of heat through glass. So are there other ways that we can improve our energy efficiency in structures? Can we produce heat, for example, and then store it in the structure? So could we. Reduce heat from solar or other sources and then use our materials that we use in structures and buildings more smartly to store that heat when we don't want it and re-emit it later. That would be a useful thing to be able to do. So all of these things, I think, are about making far, far better use of our energy. So I think there are, there are lots of things we can deploy and barriers to doing so at the moment, but there is lots of room for innovation and some sectors where innovation is mandatory really to keep them going unless we're going to have carbon storage purely to store against sectors that we can't decarbonize. And if we do that, it'll have to be a relatively small number of sectors or I think it won't be feasible.
0: And I can see that buildings in particular is a very irritating and complicated challenge, because there are so many of them, they last for a very long time and they're owned by a vast number of different people and organisations, the majority of whom are members of the public. And they're not companies that can be regulated in quite the same way. They need to be legally enforced or given incentives or, or whatever. What do you think the the set of incentives for uh, homeowners or or people who own their own houses, what are we trying to achieve here?
1: We're trying to achieve, I think, partly the building itself generating electricity. I think that all using or offsetting heat either from air source or ground source heat pumps. So we need to offset use its structures and we need to better insulate, far better insulate structures so they don't lose heat anywhere near as much or as as easily. We certainly can't carry on as we are And then we need to think about what frameworks we need to put in place to do that, that won't increase our current levels of energy poverty and how we can incentivise changes in behaviour. And I think that there are different sectors of society that will inevitably require different approaches to that. So, for example, landlord owned properties, it may be that we can offer a certain amount of grant, but essentially that we mandate changes to landlord properties when it comes to individual housing for those people i think around 25 percent of scottish homes are in energy poverty something like that in energy poverty something a bit lower in the uk i think in the rest of the uk but the measure is slightly different but you're still talking 10 15 percent of ho- households where they're already in energy poverty it is inevitable that the cost of energy is going to rise in the future Plus, we need which is a good should be a good incentive for meaning to, to help people not use as much because it is inevitable it will rise um, because it's going to come become a more and more required commodity, particularly electricity. There'll be more and more competition for it as everybody tries to decarbonize. But clearly, you require capital investment in order to insulate or generate in individual private houses. So we're going to have to think about schemes, I think, and perhaps ways that neighbourhoods could group together. Many things work better in larger groups. For example, ground source heat pumps would work better not done on an individual housing basis, probably. So so we need to come up with schemes and incentives and grants, probably, and different methods for different areas, I suspect.
0: Well, looking at this issue and sort of right across the piece of this sort of whole systems approach, what would you like to see the government do over the next, say, four or five years to really ensure a systems approach into net zero and actually set some of these things in train? What are the priorities for government action?
1: So I think I've probably already said this, but really, but I think they need to pick one or two starting sectors. They've already done electric vehicles, so that's been a good starting sector. Now we need others. And then we need to look at what decarbonizing targets, interim targets should be put in place towards 2050. And I think tackling it on a sector by sector basis is a good way of doing it. Having said that, there are also arguments for taking some geographic areas and looking at some flagship pilot projects, for example, around industrial clusters. Many industries emit waste heat alongside waste gases and waste fluids, for example, that most processes require heat. So they're wasting that heat. That heat could potentially be used for agricultural purposes, heating greenhouses, for doing various other things. If industries club together, the same with resources around a circular economy, can we take, if we take groups of industrial clusters, can we be far more efficient about our use of resources? Can we take waste products from one industry and use them as sources for another. The biggest issue I see coming up that government needs to avoid, I suppose, my my sense of alarm um, occurs where if we end up with an energy shortage one way or another, that would be my biggest concern, actually, is to do this in a measure which is why we need that systems approach so that we are thinking about all parts of the model as we move to towards something in a sector we're thinking about, do we have enough, enough electricity to do this by 2035 or does it need to wait till 2038? So that we don't end up in a position where we have energy, electricity, particularly shortages, but, but actually energy shortages overall as well. So for example, there are two ways I think that could happen. One is you could end up with electricity shortages and actually a resurgence to gas-fired stations because they're the quickest thing to do on mass and then we're back to square one again of meeting that short wall for burning gas because we don't want to have an economic crisis so that that would be a major issue another major issue that we haven't talked about at all at the moment is the convert whether we move towards hydrogen so there are a number of processes particularly industrial processes where the energy density that's required is probably too great to use electrification on current technologies. And it may be that you need to burn hydrogen to get extremely high temperatures, as at the moment we burn gas. So hydrogen is much talked about as a saving sort of heat, saving the heat problem, but it's just an energy vector. It's not an energy source. You have to create the hydrogen. At the moment, creating the hydrogen in a by in a green way requires you to sort of split water which is quite currently the process is fairly energy inefficient whereas if we look at blue hydrogen which is the other option where we could do it at scale at the moment that requires you to to split offshore um, methane produced from hydrocarbons and it produces co2 so we will have to store that co2 again and there is a risk That if we take particular decisions without a supply chain in place, that we end up, whichever of those decisions it is, that we end up in a position where we have an energy shortfall and then we use hydrocarbons anyway to meet that shortfall and we don't have the capacity to store the carbon. That would be my biggest concern moving forwards. And that's one of the big reasons for thinking about systems is to make sure that we don't get pushed down a blind alley and end up having to use hydrocarbons or
0: we have a huge economic crisis. I can see both of those risks being uh, major reasons for trying to integrate all this together. So finally, just to finish off then, thinking about the the working group itself, what's next for this project uh, and the working group?
1: So we're working on hydrogen at the moment. So there will be a piece on hydrogen and there will be a piece as well of, of advice to government around looking at any of the kind of low hanging fruit so any of the things where technologies really do exist in the market very easily and could easily be implemented and have an impact and then i think that the the working group will look at the major challenge sectors sort of one by one as we have capacity with a sense of urgency so we're looking at hydrogen first because the hydrogen system demands big decisions. And once we've made those decisions, it will be difficult to back out of them. So if we invest a lot of money in gas infrastructure, for example, um, in order to pipe, we replace our domestic gas network and pipe hydrogen around it, for example, or we replace our current gas boilers in houses with hydrogen boilers, we are kind of locked into that market even if we can't capture the carbon that we need to capture in order to make that work to start with, which means we will be locked into emitting for some time, maybe end up with redundant infrastructure in the end if the technology doesn't match it, pace or extremely expensive in energy in order to manage it. So we need, to, we need to make decisions about hydrogen early. We don't want to not be part of a hydrogen economy. It's clearly going to have a role in some areas. But we also want to make sure that that's done in a managed way and thinking about the bigger system and that we don't end up with negative impacts of decisions so that's the first piece then with i think the next piece will be decarbonizing aviation which is a major challenge and we are also looking at the moment at decarbonizing construction concrete is one of the huge areas that is problematic so we it's the second it's well it oh, Apart from water, it is the most used material in the world, concrete, which I always think is a really interesting fact. I'm a civil engineer, so I'm sort of um, embedded in the problem, I guess. But when you make concrete, you not only use energy to make it and you have to mine materials, which uses carbon, But the process of making the cement, the clinker for the cement that is the active ingredient in concrete that allows it to set is a chemical reaction that emits CO2. And there is no way of not emitting CO2 in that chemical reaction. It's part of a chemistry. So we can't somehow do it through renewables and it would make a difference so that you can replace a number of parts. But then there is an amount of CO2 in concrete production that in the current chemistry we can't replace. So we need a new material. And that, I think, is another of the sort of major upcoming challenges.
0: That sounds like a whole separate discussion, which I'm sure we could get into. We don't have time for that today. But Professor Lunn, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Rebecca Lunn, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Strathclyde. The issue of developing a systems approach to net zero is the subject of a free webinar being organized by the foundation on the 28th of June. Details of that webinar and how to register can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of other events, our blogs, the foundation future leader scheme, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we're continuing exploring the issue of getting to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And my guest will be Professor Jeremy Watson from University College London. Until then, goodbye.